Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, April 3rd, 2021. Right now, it is Wednesday morning, and once again, we have our friend Truthids here with us to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 33 of the series, and we're almost halfway there. I'm sure that these proofs will go a little faster as we progress, as I think proof 45 may have been four or five weeks, right? So hello, Truthvids. Thank you for being here. Yeah, hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Um, so yeah, we're, we're finally um, moving on kind of for the mis mistranslations and more on to topics and subjects. And um, as we've been saying over the, uh, at least last week and Prior to that, that the these epistles of the apostles, you, you can see that they're older, that it's probably 20, 30 years after the crucifixion. They have a better understanding and they've observed the the behavior, the, all these infiltrators, how they're always opposed to Christianity. And, and as John frequently calls them, Antichrist. And hopefully that once the mistranslations are cleared up, you, you can see clearly that the apostles are white men of the same stock as us, you know, men of the European race, and they're essentially giving warnings of uh, intruders and kikes perverting assemblies. And that although, you know, things and, and the time back then it was different, um, there wasn't this world jury that we have now, and, and the Talmud wasn't even written, and that there wasn't international banks. Nonetheless, it's the same warnings still apply today. And uh, if you know, even in CI, we, we still have our Wisemans and other intruders, and it applies generally to the whole world. And that if people actually understand and, and clear up these translations, then they realize what, what they're really saying and, and the warnings that they're giving to their race, our race. Right, Bill? Even in medieval Europe, and there's several examples of this in, in various posts and podcasts at Christagenia. In medieval England in the 12th century, where Jews were depicted in court documents and on official tax rolls, in official documentation, they were depicted as devils because they rejected Christ. And the people understood that they were devils. But the kings used them as tax collectors and as usurers so that they could gain money and tax the Jews on the Jews gained from usury. The kings had used the Jews against their own people for their own profit. But the people knew that the Jews were devils and they were wary of Jews constantly. They had, in a much simpler time, they had a much better understanding than we do today in our cosmopolitan, modern, um, advanced society, which really isn't advanced at all because it's deceived us into accepting all kinds of devils that these apostles were warning about in the New Testament, but we have lost the, the meanings of those warnings that are basically black and white, just like it was in medieval England. If you were a Jew, you were depicted as a devil. This one court document.
ancient court document on on Clifton Emmerheiser's website where a Jew, a, a picture of a devil is drawn on the document and the Jew is called Aaron, the son of the devil. Because Christians knew. <laughs> it's that simple. And, and here we're going to see Peter warn us about these same people or these same men, if you want to call them men, for want of a more appropriate term, these same devils. And Peter is warning about them, but he's using... Um, language that that is more or less very subtle when he warns about them. But when you actually study Second Peter chapter two, and especially the Epistle of Jude, which we will discuss in the near future, we will discuss that next in order, but not this evening. We'll mention Jude a few times this evening. We'll see that he's warning about the same devils, and he's warning about a race of beings that cannot be Christians, that never had any invitation to be Christians, never had an opportunity, yet they intrude among us and, and they interfere by setting themselves up as authorities and spreading false doctrines. That's exactly what they do. It's what they've always done. So now that we have completed a discussion of particular passages in the epistles of Peter, where certain terms are either mistranslated or misunderstood, we plan to discuss certain statements and descriptions in the epistles of Peter, James, and Jude, which demonstrate that differences between particular people are indeed racial in nature, and that the concept of race as we know it was certainly understood and recognized by all three apostles. After we complete that endeavor, we will turn to describe the Antichrist as it is described in the epistles of John. So that's probably our next four or five proofs. And um, also, just quickly, that the apostles also give you the the why, that the why they are this way, right? And that you only understand if you have their understanding. Even if you realize that, you know, Jews are evil and that they corrupt our societies, you need to know why they're, they're this way, right? Absolutely. Because of the origin, know. sorry, that's why I meant. We do need to know why they are like they are, because if we don't know why, then we could be fooled into thinking that they are just like us. And, and that's the biggest fault of our white Christian race is that we too easily project our values and our way of thinking onto others. And that's altruism. It, it's... We want to think that everybody is just like us and they think like us and they have the same ideals as us and the same objectives. And so that's certainly not true, that they truly are wolves in sheep's clothing. They appear to be like us, but they are not thinking like we are. Their only objective is to manipulate us, take advantage of us, gain something from us, whether it be some enjoyment or some object of wealth doesn't matter that's how they think that like wolves do in a sheepfold where a wolf 
might look like a, a harmless animal on his own, but he's really only looking to eat one of the sheep. That's why we have those warnings in Scripture. Everything's in black and white. Everything we need to understand about life and the creation of God is right there. And we reject it because we don't want to sound like we're racists. And that's our altruism that prevents us from wanting to be racists. When being racist is the natural state of every biological organism on the planet. We try to fight against nature. And of course, we shouldn't fight against nature. We should accept the facts of nature because that's the world that God created as I look at it. So speaking of nature, our next topic of discussion is James and the appearance of your race, the appearance of a man's race. And that's exactly what James is referring to in chapter one of his only epistle. But before we get on to verses 23 and 24, which is where we're going, we must understand that James had addressed his epistle to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. And therefore, none of what he wrote is meant for any other people but the members of those 12 tribes. James was not writing to Judeans. And it is evident that James remained in Jerusalem until he was killed by the Sadducees around 61 AD. And that crime was recorded by Flavius Josephus. James was in Jerusalem until 61 AD when he was stoned to death by certain Sadducees, which was actually an illegal act under Roman law, but the procurator I believe Festus had died. It may have been Felix. I, I don't really remember which order they came in. It was Festus. Festus died, and another procurator was on his way from Rome named Albinus. So taking advantage of the fact that there was no Roman governor, one of the Sadducees among the high priests had James stoned and, and killed. That's how James died. And this epistle seems to be written very close to that time, because as you said, it certainly was later in their lives. And by then, they had finally had the understanding that Paul did concerning the 12 tribes scattered abroad. That was an understanding that they never had during the ministry of Christ and the early chapters of the book of Acts. They started to gain that understanding with Peter's vision and the conversion of the members of the household of Cornelius from Acts chapter 10 and 11 onward, which is even that event is several years after the resurrection. It's hard to tell when because of the way the chronology is presented in the book of Acts. We really can't pin a time to Peter's ministry from Acts chapter 2, which was the first Pentecost, right, which was immediately after the resurrection, several weeks, until Acts chapter 12, with the death of Herod Agrippa I, 
that event week in time. I believe that was either 41 or 43 AD. I think it was 43 AD off the top of my head. So Acts chapters 10 and 11 probably happened close to 40 AD, but we, or 43 AD, but we really can't be positive because there's no way to, to pin any of the narrative down to that particular time. So even that was probably seven or eight years after the crucifixion when Peter had his vision in Acts chapter 10. And from there, Peter admitted what the vision meant in Acts chapter 11. And, and from there we see that the book of Acts represents a learning process. That by the time of the end of the book of Acts, which doesn't end until Paul is in Rome in 61 AD, the same year that James was killed in Jerusalem, Paul is now in Rome awaiting his trial. That's when the book of Acts ends and it's evident that in many ways the apostles had learned the lessons of the gospel and the prophets and the meaning of the scripture over that period of what would be about 28 years between the resurrection and the end of the book of Acts. So the book of Acts represents a learning process that the apostles themselves admit Peter admitted the reasons for his receiving that vision, and it changed his mind about the nature of the gospel of Christ, that it wasn't just for the circumcised, that it was for these 12 tribes scattered abroad, who he had called sojourners in, in his first epistle that we discussed last week. And and Bill, the um, Peter... And, you know, the other apostles, they were just ordinary people, right? Like fishermen and that. So they weren't um, experts in the law or, or all the prophecies and the prophets. And that's why, especially why it took them time, right, to, to learn it all. Well, well, right. And they very well, aside from Peter's vision, Peter's vision opened the door for him to begin learning these things. If you go back to Acts chapter 5, I believe it is where Peter and John are before the council of the Sadducees and Pharisees. And the Sadducees wanted them stoned. They wanted them dead. But Gamaliel intervened and, and actually had them pardoned. Well, even there they mention that they, they admit themselves that they are unlearned men. They were just simple fishermen on the shores of Galilee. All they would have known about the law, they would have heard in the weekly synagogue sessions where, where the Israelites would gather on the Sabbath day to hear the law in each individual locality. And, and we see those synagogues in, in the Gospel of Christ, that he visited many of those synagogues and preached there, especially in Nazareth, which was his hometown. So... They would gather once a week and hear the law. They might hear a few scriptures, a few passages of scripture, whatever, a chapter. But it was the law that was read. It was the books of Moses that were typically read. And, and they didn't very often mention the prophets in that context. Although Christ did read from a scroll of Isaiah at the synagogue in Nazareth, 
the words of the prophets were much more cryptic to them. Where Peter wrote to the sojourners in various places in Anatolia, he begins to demonstrate that he had gained an understanding of the meanings of the prophets. And it's the same thing here with James in this epistle, where he mentions and, and writes to, specifically, the 12 tribes scattered abroad. So James's salutation is a proof in itself, since with only one recorded exception, the exception of Anna the prophetess, who was said to be of the tribe of Asher in the New Testament, right? With that one recorded exception, by all ancient accounts, there were never more than a remnant portion of three tribes from Judah, Benjamin and Levi, which had returned from captivity to rebuild and inhabit Jerusalem, along with parts of Judah and Galilee, right? That they inhabited Jerusalem and the areas around Jerusalem and Galilee. History accounts for the presence of Anna, a woman of the tribe of Asher in first century Judea. Since the ancient Tyrians were not removed from their island city, they did not go into the Babylonian or Assyrian deportations. And Tyre was within the territory of Asher. They were not removed from there until the coming of Alexander the Great, when the island Tyre was finally um, defeated and destroyed by Alexander. And by that time, many of the Tyrians had apparently already spread back to the mainland during the Persian period, as Herodotus records that they had assisted the Persians in building and staffing their navy. So it's evident that during the Persian period, many of the people of Tyre, who were principally of the tribe of Asher, had moved back to the mainland and resettled there. So it is evident how Anna of the tribe of Asher could still identify herself as being of the tribe of Asher because Tyre was only destroyed about 360 years before she was described in the Gospel of Luke. So her, her family could have easily kept its identity with the other people of Asher that were known as Tyrians. And those people that were known as Tyrians were often mentioned in Herodotus and other histories. So with that exception, for the most part, from elements of three tribes, Judah, Benjamin, and Levi, along with large numbers of Edomites and other aliens, the Roman province of Judea was formed. But larger portions of all 12 tribes had been taken into Assyrian captivity, while larger portions of those three tribes had also never returned to Judea. And it is they whom James is addressing in his epistle, the 12 tribes scattered abroad, not the remnant of a couple of tribes in Jerusalem. The scattered children of Israel, being 12 tribes of one family, one nation, we would expect them all to have similar racial characteristics, 
so long as they had not mixed with other races, where Josephus describes them as an innumerable multitude dwelling beyond the Euphrates River in his own time. I believe that's in Antiquities, maybe Book 13. He was not reckoning their having migrated northward, as the prophets foresaw, but was speaking of their numbers in the place of their captivity from his own perspective. They were still beyond the Euphrates River, and they had grown into an innumerable multitude. However, when we see who the geographers and historians, such as Herodotus, Strabo, and Diodorus Siculus, describe as being in that region beyond the Euphrates River, we find only Scythians or Sake, the tribes who were also called Galatahi or Galatians by the Greeks, and who ultimately became known as the Germanic people. They were Goths, they were Alans, they were Saka or the future Saxons. But of course, James's salutation also must have included many of the Greeks and Romans, the Parthians and Phoenicians, who had also descended from the ancient Israelites. So he's writing this general epistle to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. So primarily Europe, right? With, with Parthia as well? Yes, Europe and and including Parthia and, and the Sake of Eastern Europe and Central Asia. Because at that time, they were inhabiting Eastern Europe and Central Asia. Primarily, I mean, there were a lot of the Canarians had already been in Germany. Other branches of the race had already been in Germany at an earlier time. The Kimri in Britain, the, the Galatahi of France, and, and the entire Rhine River Valley that the Romans could not defeat in, in war. The um, the tribes that fought with Hermann in the Teutoburg Forest, the, those had already been established in Germany. The Galatahi that invaded Italy and sacked Rome in the 4th century BC, in about 390 BC perhaps, they had already been migrated into Europe for quite some time, for, for four or five centuries but the greater number of them, the Saxons and, and the people that were later known as Goths and, and Vandals and Alans, were still in and around the, the Caucasus Mountains and Central Asia when James wrote. And they became the later Germanic people who had settled in Germany as the Goths, Saxons, Vandals, and, and, and in France as the Franks, but not until the 5th century, 6th century AD. Even, um, it, it's even apparent that the Germanic tribes who had come with Odin from Asia, which is from Anatolia, Scythians of Anatolia, didn't reach Germany until the 2nd or 3rd century AD. So most of the people that we know as Germans who are considered Germanic didn't come to inhabit Germany until 
much later in German history. So, so it's interesting. They must have heard of Christianity or been aware of it uh, long before the Catholic uh, converters came over to him and tried to, you know, uh, get him to affect, accept uh, Catholicism, right? Well, they did. Large numbers of the Goths, before they came into Europe, had already accepted Christianity, but they were, and, and I'm not sure how this happened, they were tainted with something called Aryan Christianity. Um, it's credited, and it was credited all the way back in ancient times, as Aryan Christianity, not to do with Aryans as a people, right? But A-R-I-A-N, after a heretic named Thomas Arius, who, who was from Alexandria in Egypt, as all the heresies seemed to come from <laughs> Alexandria in Egypt, all the early Christian heresies. And, and somehow his heretical view of Christianity, where Yahshua or Jesus Christ is not considered to be God, but a, a man... And, and the son of God and a man who I believe somehow became God, which is basically Jewish humanism. Well, well, I forget exactly how the Aryans had viewed Christ, but it was distinct from the way that the early Christian, Catholic Christians, and I use Catholic there with a small c, not a large c, because Roman Catholicism is also a corruption. The early Catholic Christians saw Christ as God, God incarnate, born God. And the Arian Christians were heretical, and the Catholic churches, small c churches at first, and later the Roman Catholic Church were at odds with Arians on that issue. And it was a serious dividing issue because Jesus Christ is God and Christians should believe that where Arians didn't believe that Jesus Christ was God as he walked the earth. They rejected that. So I don't remember all the details of Arianism, but it is a significant difference and it is a significant heresy. So somehow that got from Alexandria in Egypt into Central Asia and the home of the Goths even before they had migrated into Europe. So they were Christians, but they were always different Christians than the Romans until Roman Catholicism eventually prevailed. And that too is, is a heresy. So that these different um, interpretations or views of the concept of the divinity of Christ or how Christ, um, how his divinity was manifest or how he was God and, and the Arians did not believe that he was eternal. They reject that. So the Roman Catholics will say that the Arians did not believe that Christ was co-eternal with God, where identity Christians would understand that Christ was eternal because he is God, <laughs> incarnate as a man. So, so we have a, a different view of that than the Roman Catholics. 
And that makes it a little more difficult or a little more complicated explaining the difference that Arians had with early Christians and then with Roman Catholics. But the divide wasn't manifest in history until the Roman Catholic Church was founded. Once the Roman Catholic Church was founded, we could see that the Goths, who were already Christians before Rome, had been Christians of a different sort, that they had this heresy that they carried with them. Uh, and it's probably be because of these people that the apostles are warning about that must have infiltrated them and, and corrupted their understanding, right? Or, or taught a different Christianity. Oh, I am certain. I am certain because Arianism seems to accommodate Judaism. It, it accommodates the view of Christ. It, it, it makes Christianity a little more, um, the existence of Christianity a little more palatable to Jews because Jews don't understand that Yahweh God can incarnate himself on earth as a man and live as a man. And that's the concept of the Messiah. They don't understand that that could happen. So they accuse Christians of idolatry for worshiping a man. But that's not true. Christians don't worship a man. They worship Yahweh God who incarnated himself as a man. That's what Christians worship in order to redeem them from the curses of the law. And even Daniel says that the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And that's very clear, even in Jewish versions of the prophets in Daniel chapter 9. So they're denying, the Jews deny their own prophets. They deny Isaiah. They deny Daniel. Where Christians, truly small c Catholic Christians, accept the prophets. We accept the prophets wholly. So that's a digression also. But they were Christians, and they were Christians before Rome. And they must have been among these 12 tribes scattered abroad, in spite of the fact that somehow, and I don't think this can be explained in history, I think that the history is too dark. It, it's murky. It's not recorded, in my opinion. I've never seen anything that explained how the Goths could be Arians. But historians as early as Procopius and, and church fathers long before him did recognize the differences and, and mentioned some of the problems that the Goths had with the Romans on account of those differences. So with this in mind, the fact that James is writing to these 12 tribes scattered abroad, we should read James chapter 1, verses 23 and 24. First, from the King James Version. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man, beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholds himself and goes his way, and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. Now, if men of any race regardless of their appearance, could be Christians and keep the word of God. What would the look of their faces have to do with their behavior? Why would James make an analogy comparing the look of a man's face to his behavior? 
But here the Greek passage translated in the King James Version is as his natural face. That passage in Greek is to prosopon, tes genesios atu. These are two nouns, prosopon and genesios, accompanied by definite articles, to and tes, and a pronoun, atu. And the first article and noun, to prosopon, are in the accusative case, and therefore they are the object of the verb translated as beholding. So in that passage, beholding his face, right? If we didn't have that word, teskenesios, that phrase, teskenesios, in there, it would just say beholding his face. We would translate that verb as observing rather than beholding, but that's okay too. That's not, that's a, in this, that, that's a difference that really isn't even important. The subject of that verb is, of course, the man doing the beholding. The word prosopon is literally a face, a visage, a countenance, or in some contexts, the appearance or look of a person. So the word prosopon encompasses all, that me all those meanings, but it's literally, most literally, it's face. So here, speaking of a man looking into a glass or mirror, it can mean nothing else but face, right? The second article and noun, as well as the pronoun, tes genesios auto, are all in the genitive case, which primarily shows possession, source, or origin. The pronoun, being masculine and singular, is of course him, or of him, or his. It means of him or his, and that's how it would be translated in various contexts. It wouldn't be translated any other way, being masculine and singular. Being together, these three words, must be taken as a unit which describes what was mentioned before, which is to prosopon. So the phrase, grammatically, tes genesios atu, is a sort of adjectival phrase modifying the noun prosopon. And that is how the words are treated in the King James Version and at least most other translations. But while it might be an adjectival phrase, the word genesios, which is the genitive form of genesis, is still a noun. And it should not merely be reduced to an adjective by itself in the phrase where the King James has his natural face. That is not an honest translation of this word. That creates a lie which allows the translator to obscure or circumvent the true meaning of the term. The Greek language certainly had adjectives for such a purpose, if that were what Peter had wanted to say. For example, the word fusis, or the related term fusicus, which is actually a genitive form of fusis, 
They appear as natural. Several times in the writings of both Peter and Paul, and I'm, sh- I'm sorry, I should have said earlier if that were what James wanted to say here, <laughs> what James wanted to say. We're in James. So this, these words, fusus and fusicus, which do mean natural, appear several times in the writings of Peter and Paul. The apostles knew how to say natural. Genesis is not how to say natural. It's a noun. It's not an adjective. So this is a blatant and perhaps a purposeful error on the part of the translations of the King James Bible and many subsequent verses. The word genesis, for which we have the genitive singular form genesios here, is a noun which means, according to Liddell and Scott, an origin, source, productive cause. That's the use that we see where we have a book titled Genesis, right? And then, in reference to living creatures, a manner of birth, race, descent, and a race or kind or family. So describing a man looking into a mirror, and in relation to James's later remark about what sort of man he was, which you can see by looking into a mirror, that's what James is talking about. That's how he figures that you could see what sort of man you are by looking into a mirror. In this context, this word genesios can only refer to the man's race, and that is the way that it must be translated, because it's a noun, it's not an adjective. By itself, it is not an adjective that means natural. It cannot be translated that way. It creates a lie. Rather, it is a noun, written in English as genesis, but it means origin, descent, race, or kind. So we must translate the same passage, James chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, in this manner. Because if one is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing the appearance of his race in a mirror, where he observes himself and departs, and immediately forgets of what sort he was. And that's exactly what James is saying. There's no other way that that could be honestly interpreted. In the North American Standard Bible, in James chapter 1, verse 23, and this is apparent in BibleWorks software, as well as the notes to the printed editions, where, just like the King James Version, they also wrote his natural face. There is a footnote, and it states literally, the face of his birth, or nature. So they admit the literal meaning of the phrase, but they cannot accept it. So they wrote, natural face. And they could not bring themselves to use the term race, even in the footnote which is a determining factor 
of the face of one's birth or nature, as well as the true meaning of the term as for people, their genesis, the genesis of people is none other than their genea or their race, the natural face of a sheep. You could look at every sheep, a, a grown man or woman can look at every single sheep on earth and know it's a sheep. You just know it's a sheep from the way it looks. Of what sort he is. Immediately forgets of what sort he was. If you look in the mirror and you're a sheep, you're going to recognize a sheep. So you're not going to go out and act like a dog or a wolf. You're a sheep. How could you act like a dog or a wolf? You don't, you're not even equipped to do that because you're a sheep. But if you're a baboon and you look in the mirror, you're going to go out and steal bananas and swing from trees. And I'm making a, a, a half um, funny allegory, but that's the way it is. You're going to act like a baboon. But if you're supposed to keep the law of God, if the law of God was meant for you, if you're one of the children of God, and you don't keep that law, you hear the word and you're not a doer, then you might be an Adamic man, but you're acting like a baboon because you're not keeping the law. The message which James is conveying here is that although a man may be a child of Adam and of Israel, born in the image and likeness of Yahweh, his God, this is not enough by itself. For unless he is also a doer of his word, then he is certainly not doing well, and he is not performing to the intent of the creator. He may as well be of some other race, since he is not serving the purpose for which, we, for which he was created. I want to look up a passage in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1. But now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he did form thee, O Israel. James is writing to the twelve tribes scattered abroad. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. <coughs> so we're commanded to obey our creator. And when we look in the mirror and we see a white man, but we're not keeping the word of our God, we may as well be squat monsters or niggers or something else. That's what James is saying here. And this is also important. By using the phrase, appearance of his race, James also indicated that not every race here was born in the same image and likeness. And for that reason, race does matter. So, so he's basically saying that um, we, we have to obey our God and follow the commandments because we are Israelites and, and essentially non-whites can never act this way, right? And you, you could also determine from this that by their fruits you will know them, that if someone uh, cannot obey the commandments, then you, you have to question, is he an Israelite, right? Well, well right, that's absolutely true. Non-whites are never expected to act this way. Look at the Canaanite woman 
She was never told to go and sin no more. Even though he threw her a crumb, he dropped a crumb for her and healed her daughter. She was never told, follow me. She was never told, go and sin no more. She was just told, go home. It'll be as you say for your daughter. She wasn't in the context of sin and the law. The law is not for her. She wouldn't be expected to keep the law. And she wasn't. Dogs get crumbs from the children of the table. There's a lot of lessons in that encounter with the Canaanite woman and the Judeo-Christian denominational churches draw the wrong lesson from it all. Because they'll point at that Canaanite woman and say, look, Eli James, Canaanites can be saved too. But that's not what's happening there. That woman was dropped a crumb that doesn't get a dog into the kingdom of heaven. That's the lesson that should be drawn from there. That she would never be expected to keep the law. So there's no mention of sin, of obedience, of commandments. She was just dropped a crumb. Looking at this verse, James 1, 23, 24, James 1, 23 at Bible Hub. Bible, Heads a website, Bible Hub is a website that offers the text of verses as they appear in all the popular Bible translations. So, when my translation is drastically different than the King James Version, sometimes I go to Bible Hub to see how it is in 25 other translations. Even Young's literal translation, or, or the apostolic polyglot, or, or something like that, that, that some of those translations often do pretty well, but not always. Looking at this verse in Bible Hub, every single one of them either ignores the word Genesis, or it translates it as a mere adjective, as natural. And it's about 50-50 that it's not even in half the translations, this word. They just left it out. Why would they just leave a, a significant word out? It, if you look at the phrase, to prosopon teis genesios atu, teis genesios, that, that's a significant concept inside of that phrase. How could they just ignore it? Half of them. And the other half simply translate this noun as an adjective, natural. And that omits most of the meaning of the noun. It's not intellectually honest. It's actually crooked. It's blatantly crooked to do that. And they all did it, every single one of them. It shows you they'll never touch the, the word race, that they always stay clear of it, right? No matter what. Absolutely. And here, of all places in Scripture, and, and it could be argued, right? And they do it all the time, even if they don't make any sense. That, that, that word generation, it always means generation. It never means race. And that's what they claim. And they're lying because it always means race. But here the word isn't genea or genos. It's not generation in that sense. It's genesios, which is one's origin. 
and one's genesis. But one's genesis, the, the origin of, pers- of a person is in his race. And that's the way it must be translated here because it's speaking of people. Where the book of Genesis is called Genesis because it's speaking of a society or of the creation of God or however you want to understand that. It's speaking not merely of people, but of the world, right? And and the animals and the trees and all of that, the sun, moon, and stars and all of that. So it has a greater idea of people. It's, it's speaking of a greater concept than mere people. So Genesis is appropriate. But even then, in Genesis chapter 5, we see this is the book of the race of Adam. And the word race is right there in the King James Version. So that time they got it right. That one time they got it right. I think that might be the only time they got it right, if I'm not mistaken. And if I am mistaken, then there aren't too many other occasions. That's for sure. But that one time they got it right. And here, it's blatant that they got it wrong. More than any other passage, in my opinion, it's blatant here that they got it wrong. There are other places where they clearly got it wrong. But this, I think, is the most blatant. Because he... Yeah, that, that they claim Cain comes from Adam, so, so they could safely put it, you know, the race of Adam there. That there was no other races that, uh, you know, for contention there. Right. Okay. So, understanding this, we hope that that helps to lend understanding to the substance of our next proof, which is the racial message of the Apostle Peter found in chapter 2 of his second epistle. And he will explain the origin of all these, um, you know, bastards roaming around and infiltrating our society, right? The blemishes on our society. Well, well, right, which at his time was primarily Jews, but there were others because Canaanites and Edomites were in many more places than Judea. And, and that's also something that we lose track of, that there were Canaanites among the Greeks, and, and there were certainly Canaanites among all of the old Genesis 10 nations. There were probably Canaanites among the Phoenicians in in Carthage and maybe even elsewhere. They had Canaanite slaves. So these Canaanites were always around. And Peter is speaking about them, the descendants of the Canaanites, the Rephaim, the Kenites, in this second chapter. So here we shall discuss the second chapter of Peter's second epistle and the racial message it contains, whereby addressing Christians who were descended from the 12 tribes of Israel, as we demonstrated when we discussed the salutations of his epistles and the various mistranslations which they have suffered. And we did that just last week, I believe, in our last presentation. Here he speaks to them of false prophets and the heresies which they shall introduce among Christians and relates those who introduce them to the fallen angels, to the sins of Cain and Sodom and Gomorrah, and then informs his readers that even when they feast together with them, they are only natural brute beasts 
who were born in corruption and destruction, or as the King James Version has it, who were made to be taken and destroyed. Because of this chapter of Peter's second, because this chapter of Peter's second epistle and the lone epistle of Jude so closely parallel one another in this respect, we are going to make a few cross-references between them as we believe that one complements the other. Yet, because they are also separate attestations of the same circumstances, I believe they deserve to be treated separately, each being proofs of the racial message of Scripture in their own right. And Jude is even more explicit, and I think that Jude is even um, better worded than Second Peter. That Jude, maybe perhaps he was more eloquent, maybe perhaps he had a better understanding, but I believe that Jude is even better worded than Second Peter. But Second Peter, we can indeed see the issue at hand, and that Peter was doing his best to explain that. And, and that goes back to something else, right? Critics believe that 1 Peter and 2 Peter, that one or both really didn't belong to the Apostle Peter, which I reject. And part of their proof of that is the fact that 1 Peter and 2 Peter um, have different writing style, that, that they're... Um, First Peter is more eloquent, Second Peter is cruder in its writing style, or all sorts of excuses like that. But we see variations in writing style from one epistle to another in the writings of Paul that are very easily explained by the fact that Paul had different scribes for one epistle and another. And that the people who, who were taking the dictation of the epistle had liberty to phrase things the way they thought they should be phrased very often in, in the actual Greek grammar, it's easy to imagine that Peter being at an advanced age here. Because I truly believe that when Peter, and this is one reason why I believe that, that Peter was writing these epistles after Paul had already passed, or was at least already arrested in Rome. And Peter was ostensibly an older man than Paul. But his testimony of Paul's epistles in 2 Peter chapter 3 informs me that Paul is already either about to be executed in Rome or has been executed in Rome when Peter was writing because he's writing about Paul's epistles and the value of those epistles, basically in retrospect. And he's writing to the assemblies that Paul had brought to Christ, that Paul or Paul's immediate followers had founded. When I say immediate followers, I'm speaking of men such as Silas and Timothy and Titus and, and those men. So Paul either founded these assemblies himself or one of his immediate fellow workers, as he preferred to call them, had founded. So where, 
where Peter um, referred to Paul's epistles. He seems to be writing as if Paul would have no other epistles, that those epistles that he had written that his readers were familiar with are probably going to be it. And that's the way I interpret that. Now, the way Peter worded that is open to interpretation. But that's how I interpret it, that Paul's already gone or isn't going to write anymore, right? <laughs> According to the wisdom given unto him, ha has written to you, and, and that's it, in, in my opinion, that's Peter's writing in, in retrospect of Paul, even though that's arguable. That's the way I interpret it, right? So that shows that Peter is an advanced age when he wrote this epistle, because he wrote this epistle after he knew. So he must have read those epistles himself after he knew that these assemblies had been reading Paul's epistles. And some of Paul's epistles weren't written to those assemblies until his last days. The, the epistles to the um, Philippians, Colossians, they weren't written until very near the end of Paul's life. <clears throat> as he was a prisoner in Rome and awaiting his condemnation. Sure that Nero was going to condemn him. Do you think that the apostles could have been together still at this point and been writing these epistles uh, like Peter, James, and Jude? But but then when Paul went there, there was only James uh, there, right, at that point? No, evidently, James was in Jerusalem where he, he was executed. He was stoned in 61 AD, the same time that Paul is in prison in Rome the same year, and Paul was sent to Rome in 60 AD, but if you observe the book of Acts, chapter 27, he was um, held up on an island for the winter, upon which they were shipwrecked, so he probably didn't get to Rome until the beginning of the next year, right? because he was held up for the winter. They wintered on that island where they were shipwrecked. And I believe that that was 61 that he got to Rome. I might be a year off. It may have been 60. But Paul's in Rome two years. So he's definitely a prisoner in Rome when James was executed in Jerusalem. And Peter is writing his first epistle from Babylon. And he's not using Babylon as a code word for Rome at that time. Peter would not have had the revelation of Christ, which John did not write until perhaps 94 to 96 AD in Ephesus after the death of Domitian. And I forget exactly what year Domitian had died. But it was right in that time that John had written, as soon as he was permitted to go back to Ephesus. And that's probably when he wrote his three epistles. That's probably also when he published his gospel, in my opinion. Now, his gospel might have been published at Ephesus 
before he was exiled to Patmos. That's a possibility too. And sometimes I lean towards that, that that's why he was exiled to Patmos. But I can't prove that. So Domitian was the emperor from 81 to 96, and he had John exiled from Ephesus to Patmos. But when he died in 96, and this is true of all such condemnations issued by Roman emperors, that when the emperor died, if you weren't dead, you were free from your condemnation. So John would have been free to go back to Ephesus upon the death of Domitian, which by all early um, accounts in Christian writers, that's what he did, and that's when the revelation was published. But he received the revelation on Patmos during his exile. He just evidently... But we don't know where... Um, sorry, I was just saying, we don't know where Jude was at this time, right? Or even John. No. No, we don't. Originally, they seem to have been in Antioch at, at least until 54 AD. Because I think it's about 54 AD when Paul is writing his epistle to the Galatians and he visits them a short time later on his way to Ephesus and he arrives in Ephesus where he stays three years. I think that's the correct timeline. I could be off a little. He leaves Ephesus and he goes to Corinth right after he writes second Corinthians, he visits Corinth and then he leaves Corinth and goes to the Troad, where in 58 AD, the apostles gather in the Troad. So Galatians might be a little earlier because he had spent three years in Ephesus. Galatians might be 52 AD. So the apostles were in Antioch at that point. Not necessarily James, but Peter and John. James may have come to Antioch, or he may have been going back and forth, but James dies in Jerusalem. So it seems that sometime after 52 AD, John ends up in Ephesus from where he's exiled in, from, from Ephesus by Domitian. But John wasn't in Ephesus while Paul was there. And Paul was there until, I believe... 57, perhaps something around there. I, I forget the exact timing. It's all in my commentary on the book of Acts. So John couldn't have been in Ephesus until after Paul departed from there. But sometime after Paul saw him in Antioch, John ends up in Ephesus, and Peter is writing his epistle from Babylon. Peter was the apostle to the circumcision as he agreed with Paul and Barnabas back in Acts, I think it was chapter 14 or something like that. So Peter is writing from Babylon because if you understand the history of the Babylonian captivity, many of the people of Judah stayed in and around Bab Babylon, which also included parts of northern Arabia. And, and that's why people from those places are mentioned as being present at the first Pentecost in the book of Acts. Because they're Judeans, they, they retained the law and the customs because they never really wandered away from 
Babylonia. But in spite of that, they were not among the returnees who came back with Zerubbabel in, in 520 BC to build the second temple. And that's why you see the language as it is in Acts chapter 2. So Peter is writing from Babylon. A lot of Roman Catholics will say, oh, Babylon's a code word for Rome. He's really in Rome. And that's not true. Peter wasn't in Rome. He wasn't in Rome while Paul was there. And his epistle, the church that is at Babylon, the, the next to last verse in his first epistle, the church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, salute you, and so does Marcus, my son. And that must be the John Mark that we had earlier seen with Paul and Barnabas, who also would have known Peter from Antioch because he was there with him. So Mark must have been with Peter. Now, when Peter, when Paul had written Timothy, this is a long digression, I'm sorry. When Paul had written Timothy in 2 Timothy, and we don't know exactly where Timothy was when Paul wrote him. It can only be conjectured. He was evidently not in Ephesus. But when Paul wrote Timothy, he asked Timothy to come to Rome. And he asked Timothy to bring Mark with him. Which is... Um, uh, another reason why I believe that the first Peter was written rather late in second Timothy chapter four, verse 11, only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with you for he is profitable to me for the ministry. So Timothy is going to come to Rome and he's going to bring Mark. And that's evident in the last three apostles that Paul had written, which one of them is either Philippians or Ephesians. I think it's Philippians. I honestly forget which, which one. I think it's Philippians. And the other two are Philemon and Colossians. Were all written after Timothy had got back to Rome and was rejoined with Paul as he was a prisoner in Rome. And then the last three epistles Paul wrote and then later, we see this epistle of Peter, and it's being written from Babylon, and Mark's with Peter. And I believe it's the same Mark. And <laughs> I think that Peter really was in Babylon. The Catholics like to say, oh, no, Peter was in Rome. Babylon's a code word for Rome. And that's not true because, first, Babylon is still standing. It's still a city in the first century BC, AD, I'm sorry, the first century AD. It's a city in Parthia because that area was part of Parthia. And if the Catholics thought Babylon is a code word for Rome in the epistle to Peter, and I've seen them claim that, why don't they think Mystery Babylon, Babylon is a code word for Rome <laughs> in Revelation chapter 18? Because the Reformers insisted on that, and the Roman Church fought against that identification. So the Catholics are double-minded. Peter is really in Babylon. He's really among the circumcision when he writes these two epistles. 
the second epistle being written a short time later and to the same audience as the first epistle. So that's another long digression. But all of that together proves to me it's all circumstantial, but it demonstrates how Peter could be writing at a very late time in his life and Paul is probably already executed in Rome. I really believe these epistles to, to the assemblies that Paul had founded were probably written in, in perhaps 64, 65 AD after Paul has already been executed. That's my opinion. It's a well-formed opinion, but it's built on um, several circumstantial aspects for a lack of more verifiable facts. And Mark could be the um, go-between, right? He could go to Paul and tell him everything that's happened because he was with um, Peter a lot. And then if Paul died, he could go back to Peter and, and even bring the epistles with him or copies and, and tell him all about Paul's ministry and where he's been, etc. right? Right. And, I, I, and, and that's how... I'll... That's how Peter would have known to write these places and, and, and where to send his epistles. Yeah, you know, once the first epistle of Peter is written to these strangers who are scattered throughout um, five or six provinces in Anatolia, then Peter would have had to give copies of that epistle to, to couriers to bring them to all those places. And that's how the epistles survive to us today. And he would have had to have done that twice. And, and Rome had a very um, comprehensive system of, of travel for its citizens and its soldiers, of course, for, for Romans to get back and forth throughout the empire. And, and that's how the, the, the apostles, if you read Acts chapter 27, they could go to such and such a port and understand that they're going to get such and such a ship to take them to such and such a place where they would have to get a, a different ship to go to a different place. That's how they traveled. Even if Paul often himself had traveled on foot through Anatolia for, for the purpose of visiting all the assemblies it, it was convenient for him to do so, and being a relatively poor man, he wouldn't have been able to afford a, a chariot and carriages and horses, and that those were the um, those were objects of luxury. Philip had a chariot. The language in the Book of Acts, where he encountered the so-called Ethiopian eunuch, who really wasn't an Ethiopian, he was actually a Judean, but he ran up on him. That's chariot language. And I've never seen that chariot language used in reference to Paul's travels. <coughs> so hopefully that makes sense. <laughs> when we discuss Jude, we're, we'll make a lot of parallels with things that John said. And, and I thought there might be one or two of them in here, but I thought I'd leave most of them out and wait for Jude. But when we discuss Peter, we'll discuss some things that Jude said. So I hope we could get started on this now after all those digressions. I'm sorry. We're going to read the entire chapter of Second Peter here so that we can see the context of the statements which we choose to discuss we cannot possibly comment on the entire chapter, nor do we need to for our purposes here. So we're going to follow the King James Version and offer our own translations when we feel it is necessary. I don't know if you're ready for this. 
Second Peter chapter two, verse one. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily, and that's said as a warning, right? It's not said as a current event. It's spoken of as a warning that it's basically inevitable. Who privily shall bring in, and privily means privately or secretly, shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them. And, and that looks like they're Israelites, right? But I'm going to discuss that. And bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingers not, and their damnation slumbers not. And with greediness they shall make profit from you with fictitious words, for whom from of old their judgment is not idle, and their destruction does not sleep. Since Christ had redeemed only the children of Israel, it may seem that Peter is speaking of Israelites here, where it might be imagined that Peter is saying that Christ bought or purchased or redeemed the false apostles with his blood. And therefore, the false prophets may also be redeemed. But that is not the case which Peter is making. Rather, Peter states, from of old, their judgment is not idle. As the destruction of the ungodly had been ordained long beforehand. It's actually throughout the words of the prophets and the Psalms and Moses in Genesis and, and Numbers and Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. There was no Israelite who was condemned from of old. As all of the disobedient Israelites of the Old Testament were purposely destroyed up to the judges period, as it is explained in scripture, up to the judges period. And they were destroyed as examples to the people. So they were not left to further corrupt the people and teach false doctrines among them. That includes rebels such as Achan in the Valley of Achor and Korah, who will be mentioned later in this chapter, and even the sons of the, the sons of the prophet Eli, who were destroyed and replaced by the prophet Samuel. In the books of the prophets, the Israelites were promised chastisement and then mercy and eternal life and preservation, but never condemnation. So apparently, Peter is discussing the body of the people as a whole, who have always had false prophets among them. The false prophets and wolves in sheep's clothing are apparently Israel, the Baal prophets of old. They claim to be Israel, but they are not truly Israel, and therefore their judgment is ordained from of old. Denying the master, they must be tares and not wheat. So ostensibly, Peter is speaking in terms 
of what was apparent to men in his day and not purely in terms of genetics. The books of genealogy were long lost, and the gospel of Christ was the only way for men to tell apart the wheat and the tares, the godly and the ungodly. An examination of the Old Testament shows that because the children of Israel did not remove all the Canaanites as they were commanded, that those Canaanites were to be pricks in their eyes and thorns in their sides. That these pricks were always able, in one way or another, to infiltrate and to corrupt the people of the nation is also quite evident throughout Scripture, and especially in the prophets such as Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Peter is recognizing that it is the gospel which must separate the wheat from the tares. That until it does, we must assume that men are wheat and let them prove themselves. And at one time, it certainly did. It should still do that today. That should still be our attitude today. Likewise, as long ago as the time of Daniel, Upon finding out the two priests who attempted to use their positions of authority to corrupt a young woman, the prophet exclaimed, and I'm referring to verse 56 of the book Susanna, which I certainly believe belongs in Daniel, and it should be chapter one of what we know as Daniel, but the Jews didn't like it, and it's relegated to the Apocrypha. O thou seed of Canaan! and not of Judah. Beauty has deceived thee, and lust has perverted thine heart. In other words, their works expose them for what they are. Daniel knew that they were Canaanites because of the way that they had plotted to corrupt this young woman. Peter is telling us, likewise, how to identify the infiltrators. Those who do not acknowledge the word of God, but who teach another gospel and introduce heresies are false prophets. <clears throat> and false prophets come as infiltrators from the camp of the enemy. Yet we must be careful to understand that Peter is talking about the deceivers and not merely the deceived. So we see pastors in denominational churches who are ostensibly white and they're apparently white and there's no reason to believe they're not, yet they're teaching false doctrines that they got from the Jews. There's a different dynamic today than there was in Peter's time. Today, we've had a thousand years of Jewish converts to Christianity who have basically corrupted Christianity with all sorts of false uh, teachings. And there's, <laughs> and there's the financial side, right, that they can offer them book sales and that as long as they don't mention the Jew, etc., right? Right. There's an entirely different dynamic today than what we see in Peter's time when he issued this these warnings. Because today... I mean, I, I, I tell the story all the time, right? It's very clear 
in Martin Luther's treatise on the Jews and their lies. That even though he was writing against Jews of Jewish treachery, and he understood Jewish treachery to be natural to Jews, he came to that understanding late in his life, just like Peter here, right? <laughs> came to this understanding late in his life. Martin Luther came to the understanding late in his life that Jews were naturally treacherous and that they were always going to be treacherous. So he wrote this treatise against the Jews, 1543, three years before he died, on the Jews and their lies. And in that treatise, he actually cited three men as authorities, Raymond Lull, Paula Burgos, and Nicholas of Lyra as authorities on scripture. All three men are converso Jews. They're converted Jews. So even Luther, who's writing against the Jews, is using interpretations of Christian doctrines that were written by Jews. What the hell? <laughs> How did he not get that? <laughs> but he didn't. He, he must have known that Nicholas of Lyra, or especially Paul of Burgos, were converso Jews. So it, it's beyond me, but Martin Luther certainly didn't understand what Peter was warning about even though he realized the Jews' treachery from experience. And a lot of Luther's arguments are nonsense, and they're based on Jewish interpretations of the New Testament. And that's why they're nonsense. Saying from of old, Jude clarifies Peter's intent. The words of Jude help to clarify for us Peter's intention here where he states in his epistle at verses 3 and 4, <clears throat> Beloved, making all haste to write to you concerning our common salvation, I had necessity to write to you, encouraging you to contend, contend once for all for the faith having been delivered to the saints, speaking of that Old Testament faith, for some men have stolen in. In other words, they themselves were not saints. Now, if there's only one race, if we could all be Christians, how can men steal in? For some men have stolen in those of old, whose condemnation was of old, those of old having been written about before time for this judgment, as Peter also said, godless men. How could they steal into a Christian assembly? If you're a man coming into a Christian assembly, and you're professing Christ, how could you be godless? You can only be godless if Yahweh is not your father. Substituting the favor of our God for licentiousness. Goats deceiving the sheep with lust. Or wolves, perhaps. And denying our only master and prince, Yahshua Christ. You know, cults come and go all the time. But genes are passed down through generations, from of old. That's the only way that these men could have been condemned from of old, is to have not originated with the 
Israelites or even with the Adamic race. So Jude, in those verses, he clarifies Peter's intent here. And now Peter also relates these men through the sinners of ancient times who were condemned from of old, where he says in verse 4, he's making an association here. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell. And actually, that's the Greek, that cast them down to hell is the Greek word tauterizo, cast them into tauterus, which is Hades. And delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth, the eighth preacher of righteousness, as we interpreted and showed that that verse should be translated just last week. And saved Noah, the eighth preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And this world of the ungodly, or society of the impious, as we would translate it, are those Adamic people who died in the flood. It is not them who were condemned from of old, although they were destroyed on account of their sin. Rather, these are the spirits in prison to whom Christ preached the gospel, which, in, which Peter described in his first epistle in chapters 3 and 4 where he informed his readers that that had been accomplished. So it's not the Adamic people who died, who were condemned from of old, but the so-called angels that sinned who were condemned from of old. So now to continue with Peter. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemn them with an overthrow, making them an example under those that should live, that after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, vexed, describing Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds." So like Peter's reference to the angels that sinned, Jude states in his verse 6 of his epistle, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he is reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Jude then had also gone on to associate them with the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah and the error of Balaam, which is race-mixing as the scriptures demonstrate that it was Balaam who consulted Balak to lure the Israelites into race-mixing with the daughters of Moab. The fallen angels, or Nephilim, certainly are the common denominator in the sins of the world of the flood, the sins of Sodom, and the error of Balaam. And here Peter also informs us that Lot had tormented his own spirit by living among such lawless perverts. There's never, in reference throughout Peter and throughout Jude, speaking of this class of men who, who would be interlopers and infiltrate the body of Christ, the assemblies of Christ, and corrupt them with false doctrines. 
they never give these men one opportunity. There's not any allusion to any possibility that they could repent and come to Christ. That they were only there because they were corrupt and because they wanted to corrupt the assembly. And also and, the fact that um, they're reserved onto judgment, it, it shows you that um, they're condemned, but also that they're not never chastised, that they can do whatever they want in this life, and only if they're caught by, you know, a, a white society. But then ne there's never going to be a punishment from God, because the punishment is their uh, obliteration, right, At when he returns. And, and as Paul said, you're either a bastard or a real Adamite. And only Adamites are chastised, right? Or, or Israelites more severely. Right. Absolutely. You're either a son or a bastard, just as Wisdom of Solomon explains rather consistently through it, as I hope to have demonstrated in chapters 14, 15, 16, 17, that there are two sorts of punishment from God, punishment for destruction and punishment for correction. And these two classes here are Christians returned to Christ, and they are corrupted by this race of men or these outsiders who are going to be punished for their destruction, not for their correction. So in the epistle of Jude, the apostle had cited the writings attributed, he had cited writings attributed to Enoch. And there he also attributed to the angels the sin of fornication, which he described as the pursuit of different flesh. And we will get into that next week, I believe. While there are other references and allusions in the Enoch literature, and in one Enoch, the book known as one Enoch, to the events described by Peter in this chapter and also by Jude, in first Enoch or one Enoch chapter 10 from the translation by R.H. Charles, <coughs> we find statements concerning the fallen angels or Nephilim who had mingled with the daughters of Adam to precipitate the flood of Noah, such as speaking of a, speaking prophetically of a future time, and to Gabriel, said the Lord, proceed against the bastards and the reprobates and against the children of fornication and destroy the children of fornication and the children of the watchers from amongst men. Those angels described as watchers, those fallen angels described as watchers here in Enoch, are also given that title in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 4. Angels are described as watchers. So here it's speaking of fallen angels described as watchers. It is their offspring who are the bastards who were condemned from of old but who, until their condemnation is achieved, would infiltrate and corrupt the assemblies of the children of God. And we will continue as we go on here to describe or, or to see that Peter described 
very evidently that he's speaking of a separate race of people. So, so Bill, that, that prophecy, is that a prophecy 6,000 or longer years ago uh, in the Book of Enoch of what's going to happen at the when Christ returns, he'll make this command to wipe them all out? Well, I believe so. I, I believe that this is a prophecy. This did not happen in the flood. And, and it is a mistaken notion that this happened in the flood. Because in the flood, where it says that there were Nephilim in the earth in those days, the word Nephilim, which means fallen ones, is translated as giants in Genesis chapter 6. And that's unfortunate because there's another term that is also translated as giants in Scripture, and that term is Rephaim. And we are told very clearly in, I believe it's Numbers chapter 13, verse 33, that the Anakim, who were also giants in Scripture, and Rephaim were Nephilim. They were Nephilim. They were Nephilim in the earth in those days and after when the, and, and the King James Version has sons of God, because that's what the Masoretic text says, but in some verses of the Septuagint, it doesn't say sons of God. It says angels. And in the Enoch literature, it doesn't say sons of God. It says sons of heaven. So it's obvious to me that the Masoretic text, where it says sons of God in Genesis chapter 6, is corrupt. It should say sons of heaven or angels. And that's consistent with itself where it refers to them as Nephilim or fallen ones and with all later scripture where these people especially here in in Peter and in Jude are described as the angels that sinned we see the Rephaim survived the Rephaim were never exterminated in the flood they're mentioned the Rephaim the Nephilim the Anakim they are mentioned throughout scripture that that's um we say that word nephilim in genesis 6 4 they were giants in the earth that's the word giants is nephilim and we see it in numbers chapter 13 verse 33 where the children of israel say and there we saw the giants the nephilim it's the same word the sons of anak which come of the giants the Nephilim, the fallen ones, which fallen ones? The fallen ones that were in the earth in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. But between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 6, the only man that's described is Adam. And then there's Cain and the serpent. So who are the Nephilim? The serpent represents the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they are the fallen angels. They are the Nephilim that are described in Genesis chapter 6. They committed the same sin that Eve committed with the serpent by race mixing with the sons of men, the daughters of men. That's the daughters of Adam. That word is Adam for men. That's why it was a sin. It was the same sin committed in Genesis chapter 3. That's why they were punished because they weren't supposed to touch the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil.
That defines touching the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's the only law that they could have had to be punished for, given to Adam in Genesis chapter 2. So that's what Eve did. That's what Adam did. That's what these people in Genesis chapter 6 did that descended from Adam and Eve through Seth. And that's what Peter and Jude are warning about here. That these angels that sinned, these people who were condemned from of old, they're the only people that were condemned from of old. Nothing that God made was condemned from of old. As Paul of Tarsus said, in Adam all men die, in Christ all men, meaning all Adam, shall be made alive. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And he explains that same thing at length in Romans chapter 5. So the men that God made were not condemned from of old. The Adamic people that sinned in the flood heard the gospel of Christ as Peter himself explained in his first epistle in chapters 3 and 4. Now where he's writing a second epistle and explaining this, he's not saying that those people that were saved in Christ who died in the flood were condemned. He's not speaking about them. He's speaking about the other half of the equation, men who were condemned from of old. Because these angels that sinned were only men. They were here on earth. They weren't floating around the sky with wings. So now Peter makes a conclusion in verse 9 of the chapter. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. So even when they sin, they're going to be delivered out of their temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of punishment to be punished. Yet now Peter goes on to describe them even further. He describes how they were operating in his own time, and he likens them to beasts. But chiefly, them that walk after the flesh, in the lust of uncleanness, and despise government, presumptuous are they, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities, whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, Bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. So these men, whom Peter describes here, have no fear of God or of godly authority. And while they are not as powerful as the angels, not even the angels found it necessary to accuse them before God. Why would the angels not to find it necessary to accuse them before God? Because they were already condemned. They were only acting as they would be expected to act. So in Jude, verse 8, speaking of the same men, he wrote, Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. The enemies of God, as we can observe in our modern world, blaspheme every good and noble and honorable thing. And they seek to create their own sick, perverted version of creation. So likewise, we read in Jude verse 9, Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebukes thee. And in that passage, the body of Moses is actually an allegory for the body of the law the writings of Moses, that the devil 
in the Talmud and in their other writings has contended with ever since the time of Christ. And even before that. So now Peter describes, he continues to describe them, and he describes them quite frankly here in verse 12 of 2 Peter chapter 2. But these, as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. And here we have a problem with translation, which, when corrected, makes this passage even more clear and even more damning of, of these men. And that's a verb, geneo, G-E-N-N-A-O in Greek, in Greek letters. Geneo occurs about 97 times in the New Testament, and about 41 of those occurrences are in the genealogy of Christ given in Matthew chapter 1. Then, outside of Matthew chapter 1, it appears most often in the writings of John, and then the letters of Paul in the book of Acts. It is found once here in Peter, right here in this verse, once in Mark, and a few times, I think four times in Luke, of people. It literally means to be born, which is why it occurs 41 times in the genealogy of Christ in Matthew chapter 1, because it literally means to be born on just about every occasion. The King James Version translates the word either as born or in a passive context, as begotten. Yet here, rather oddly, it renders the word as made. Why did it do that? When it translates it as born on 96 occasions, why is it made here? Of course, people are not made outside of being born. However, reading the King James Version, one may get the errant impression that Salvation and destruction are dependent on one's own choices rather than along the lines of the racial divisions of creation and corruption. These were born as natural brute beasts, born to be taken and destroyed. In the book of Genesis, everything which Yahweh God made was declared to be good. And Nothing he made was born to be taken and destroyed. As Peter says of these men here. Ostensibly, that is because Yahweh himself did not make them, as he did not make the bastards and the children of the watchers, as the bastards are called in Enoch. So we translate verse 12 to read with some other slight differences. But these, having been born as natural, irrational animals into destruction and corruption, in which blaspheming they are ignorant in their corruption, they shall also perish. 
One is either a son of Yahweh, created in his image, or a bastard, and his father is the devil, the creator of bastards. And uh, all normals are like this, right? They don't accept, uh, they don't understand where they come from. Uh, and to them, a lot of them try to um, uh, put away race and say there's no such thing as race, right? But but whenever you present this to them, they will always reject it. Well, right. And, and that's pretty sad because looking at James chapter 1, verse 23 and verse 24, because what James says in verse 24 that defines, that makes more precise our interpretation of his meaning. It, it elucidates it more precisely. Let me put it that way. It proves our interpretation of 23 when James says in 24 that the man looking in a mirror goes away and forgets what sort of man he was. Now, the King James Version has what manner of man he was. But the word is opoius, and it means, according to Liddell and Scott, of what sort or quality, of what kind. That's how it's defined in, in the lexicon. That's what it means. But the King James translator said manner. Well, you know what? If you have a million white men, how do you tell which white man of the 12 tribes of Israel, because that's who James is speaking about, how do you tell which white man, when all other things are apparently equal concerning their appearance, when they're all of the same general race, sort, or kind, if the whole world is white, how do you tell which man's a sinner by looking at his face in the mirror? You can't. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's absurd. James isn't talking about behavior. Even if you have a million white men and 10 million people of other races, and you assume that everybody is equal and they're all Christian, you make that assumption. How do you tell which one's a sinner? by looking at his face. You can't. That's absurd. James is talking about race. He has to be talking about the appearance of his race, which is the proper way to translate that phrase in verse 23, which was translated as beholding his natural face in a glass. And just as we found um, support for our interpretation, not that we needed it because we have the actual Greek meanings of the words, but we found support for our translation of James 1.23 in the New American Standard Bible, even if they couldn't bear to put it in the text, they did put it in the notes Likewise, we will find support from the same source, the New American Standard Bible, for our interpretation of the word geneo here in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. The New American Standard Bible actually translates this word geneo correctly here. So I will cite that version of 2 Peter 2.12 simply to substantiate 
or corroborate my own translation of the word. And it says, but these, like unreasoning animals, as I had written, irrational animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed. This is speaking about men. Reviling where they have no knowledge will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that translation. I believe mine is much more accurate. But that's pretty good as it describes these men born born as natural irrational animals into destruction and corruption where I translate it very similarly. They were born for no other purpose than to be destroyed. Because that's the the end of a bastard in scripture. If you're a bastard, you have no purpose in, in the eyes of God. A bastard shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Period. Only As, to teach us evil, right? That, that's their only purpose. That's their only purpose is to teach us evil and to punish us when we do evil. That That's the um, phenomenon of the devil, of the Jew, of the bastard, of, of everybody that has been educated by them. And, and we see this today throughout our Marxist universities and, and our Marxist institutions and governments, because they've all been Judaized. That they've all, God has been taken out of everything in Western society today. They lure you into their sin and, and then they condemn you when you sin. They do it over and over again. But if you don't agree with their sin, then they condemn you anyway. So they lure you into sin, they teach you sin, and then you're punished for it over and over and over again. That's the pattern throughout history. And we don't see it. I don't know why we don't see it. If we're not punished for it as individuals, we certainly are punished for it as a nation. And the bastards that taught us to sin are the same source of our punishment. As Paul talked about the vessels of mercy being the descendants of Jacob and the vessels of destruction being the descendants of Esau, Esau having been mingled with the Canaanites because he had Canaanite wives, all of his descendants are part Canaanite. We see here in Peter that there are people who are born the descendants of Esau, according to Paul of Tarsus in Romans chapter 9, were basically created as vessels of destruction. Here in Peter, we see that there are people who are born as natural, irrational animals, or as the King James Version has it, because it's more poetic, as brute beasts, not having the Spirit of God, and therefore, by the circumstances of their birth, they are certainly not ever to be candidates for Christianity, since none of them could ever be saved. There is not one allusion here concerning these people, as I've said before. There's not one allusion to the possibility of salvation or redemption, but only to the plain fact that they will ultimately all be destroyed. Now, soon we hope, as we 
discuss Jude. And then as we discuss John himself, soon we hope to to present John's view of the Antichrist and how that also correlates to these passages in Peter and in Jude. For now, a few references to John's writing will probably suffice. John chapter 3, verse 3. Yahshua replied and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man should be born from above, he is not able to see the kingdom of heaven. So these people were not born from above. And Peter is speaking of an entire class or perhaps race of people. In 1 John chapter 4, you are from Yahweh, children, and you have prevailed over them. Why didn't John say, go convert them? instead of, you have prevailed over them. Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, or in society. They are from of society. For this reason, from of society they speak, and society hears them. We are from of Yahweh. He knowing Yahweh hears us. He who is not from of Yahweh does not hear us. So John is making a racial distinction that there were people from God and there were people who are not from God. From this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. John is explaining the same thing that Peter is explaining here, but in an entirely different manner. There are two classes of people in the world, those born of Yahweh, which are of the Adamic race, who can see their face in the mirror and know that they should hear the word of God and do it, and those born of the world, who are bastards. Unless a man is born of Yahweh, he shall not see the kingdom of heaven. Period. Continuing with Second Peter, unless you have something to say. No, we can keep going. I'm fine. Verse 13. And shall receive these natural brute beasts, these people, these men born as natural brute beasts, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness, as they that counted pleasure to riot in the daytime. Once again. Spots they are, and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. They're not converts. They're never going to be converted. They weren't meant to be converted. They were born as natural brute beasts. Having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, a heart they have exercised, with covetous practices. Cursed children. He doesn't call them cursed men. He calls them cursed children. So the bastards may be deceived into thinking they can be Christians, even when they only deceive themselves. And feasting with Christians, they are merely spots in their feasts of charity. So they can't ever really be Christians. They are also cursed children. And in scripture, the children of bastards, Cain, Canaan, Esau, 
certainly were all cursed. Now, as Jude also does, Peter associates them with the way of Balaam, which have forsaken the right way. So at one time, somewhere in their origin, somebody was right and are gone astray. Now, how did they do that? How did they go astray? <clears throat> Following the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity, the dumb ass speaking with a man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, broken cisterns that can hold no water, clouds that are carried with the tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. Now Jude described them much the same way when he wrote, that woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. These are spots in your feast of charity, the same term that Peter used here, feasting together without fear, tending to themselves, clouds without water being carried away by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead being uprooted, stormy waves of the sea foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of darkness is kept forever. This can be related to Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians in chapter 11, where he had warned Christians that many of them were sick and dying because they did not make a distinction of themselves because there were people of the body of Christ, people within the body of Christ who were not worthy of the body of Christ. That's in my original commentary for these verses, but I cut it out here for the sake of brevity. Perhaps I should have left it in because it's so succinct and it it also clarifies the meaning of Peter and Jude here, where we see spots in Christian feasts of charity. So people that can go to church, pretend to be Christians, go to the assembly and sit and feast at those Sunday um, pork barbecue dinners, those swine dinners that Christian, denominational Christians love to eat, because they think that Jesus died so that they could eat a ham sandwich, yet they're sitting with niggers and feasting and interloping Jews and, and people of other races. And those people of other races are merely and literally spots in their feasts of charity because Christ didn't come for them. We should be able to behold our faces in a mirror to see who Christ came for and know what sort of men we are. Because Christ came only for those 12 tribes scattered abroad. As we may demonstrate, going back to Jude and, and the example of Peter here, Cain was a bastard, whereby sin lieth at the door, and for that reason he could never do well. Likewise, the way of Balaam is explained in Revelation chapter 2. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak, the king of Moab, 
to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. What is fornication? Fornication is race mixing. As we see in Jude verse 7, fornication is the pursuit of strange flesh. But as we see in that account to which Christ himself referred there, which is found in Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter chapters 24 and 25, they committed fornication when they joined themselves to the daughters of Moab. That's when they committed fornication. That's what Christ is referring to there. That's the doctrine of Balaam. That's the way of Cain. But while Korah, Korah was not a bastard. He was a Levite. But he attempted to undermine what Yahweh had instructed Moses to set up his own priestly order. And when challenged, he and those who had followed him had all died for having introduced, quote-unquote, strange fire into the camp of Israel. <clears throat> so Korah was one of those rebels in the formation of Israel that was immediately exterminated. These rebels throughout the book of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy had been removed immediately so that no Israelite surviving it couldn't be said of any Israelites surviving that they were condemned from of old. All the Israelites, even those who were exterminated immediately, those who were exterminated immediately, like Korah, were exterminated for the sake of the greater body of Israel because they had gone into sin or, or imagined something sinful that, would have, that could not exist among the people as the kingdom of heaven was developing. And the Old Testament kingdom was indeed one manifestation of the kingdom of heaven on earth with all its imperfections. So the wicked were removed immediately as an example. So there's no descendants of Korah or of Achor who it could be said they were condemned from of old because all of Israel shall be saved. These men must be of another race condemned from of old for some reason, some other reason. And any Israelite would not be an intruder or an interloper or had snuck in unawares, as Jude explains it, and we will see that next week, into the body of Israel. Even a sinful Israelite cannot sneak into the congregation of Israel to privily introduce anything, as Peter says here. Those words can't apply to Israelites. They must apply to people outside of the body of Israel coming into the body with their false doctrines. That's what Peter is explaining here. This is a completely racial message. Yeah, if a um, if a Frenchman comes into England and tell and says, you know, I'm a Frenchman coming to live amongst you, then that's fine. But but if he's actually a Jew or an Arab, then he's not. He's lying, isn't he? He's lying about his origin. He's sneaking in under a, a false uh, persona, right? 
Well, right. And these Edomites were doing the same thing. They were really Edomites, but they were pretending to be Israelites. They were circumcised. They themselves may have thought they were Israelites, but they weren't Israelites. And we'll discuss that when we get to the this description of the Antichrist in the epistles of John. Because John states that yet another way. So if you read James, and then you read Peter, and then you read Jude, and then you read John, you have to get this. You have to understand this if you actually read those epistles. And the understanding of it is hampered and obscured by these mistranslations of certain passages, such as where James referred to the appearance of one's race. And such as where Peter, in verse 12, spoke about beasts being born into destruction and corruption. Not being made, but being born. Any Adamic man can simply be a, a sinner, and you could say, oh, that sinner was made by his experiences on earth. But Peter's talking about men being born. There's another word for made that Peter could have used. Peter could have used poieo, which is to make, but he used geneo, which is to be born. So these mistranslations that they sort of make the apostles look stupid, like they couldn't use the correct Greek word for what the church wanted to say. Like Peter couldn't use poieo. He, he, what's he, a dummy? He, he meant poieo, but he didn't use poieo. That's basically the attitude of the churches when they take a word that means born and they turn it into a word meaning made. That's what they're doing. They're accusing Peter of not using the right Greek because it don't fit their doctrine. But Peter used the word for born. He did use the right Greek. You can't accuse Peter of being an idiot. You can't assume he used the wrong word. You have to translate the word he used. Otherwise, you're creating a lie, not Peter. Peter didn't lie. Okay, continue with Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. In other words, Christians are clean escaped from them who live in error. But now, through great swelling of words of vanity, they are trying to get these Christians back into error. That's what Peter's explaining there in verse 19. While they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought into bondage. And the liberty offered by those who would corrupt the gospel is actually not liberty, but licentiousness by which men become servants of corruption. Paul explained that quite often. <coughs> For if they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they themselves, they are again entangled therein. So Peter's basically saying that that's inevitable. And overcome. The later end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb. 
The dog said they were never sheep in the first place. The dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. So even if they truly follow the gospel, at least for a time, ultimately their nature is revealed, and they return to the sins of the world, or even seek to justify those sins in the name of Christ or of God. They do it all the time. So just like dogs or pigs, regardless of how you clean them up or train them, they can't be sheep. They return back to their natural state of filth. They cannot help themselves because it is not in their nature or their race to do good. These men have no hope in Christ and cannot depend on their own works to be saved as their own works are inherently, naturally evil. It's innate with them. While the children of God sin, they have a propitiation in Christ and a higher calling to walk in the spirit and not in the lust of the world, as Paul explained in Romans chapters 6 and 7. So while the Adamic man may sin, he has an inherent capacity to do good. And while these men whom Peter describes may at times appear to do good, in the end they cannot help but sin, so it would be better for them if they had never tried to do good in the first place, which is what he is saying here. They may as well stay dogs, that dogs should stay dogs. Pigs should stay pigs. They shouldn't try to be sheep. And what do we do all the time? We take dogs and pigs and try to turn them into, into sheep. Christ portrayed himself as saying to them, get away from me. I never knew you. He only knows the sheep. And a sheep could look in a mirror and know it's a sheep. And, and we've had it in CI, haven't we, with infiltrators who try to get in, but they always reveal their intentions eventually, right? Absolutely. Eli James is chief among them. He's chief among them, in, in my opinion. He agreed with me for two years on podcasts about all the racial aspects of Scripture, and then he made a sudden left turn and went right back to universalist vomit. What, where somebody who was only 85% white could be saved, or somebody who was 15% white could be saved. And, and Christ gave the Canaanite woman a bone because she was going to be saved. That was Eli. That's the error he went into. And he's a perfect example of that, that a dog can't help being a dog, and Eli, being a pig, cannot help ultimately teaching some form of universalism. Where even, as he himself said, Mexicans could be Christians back in 2011. So that's one example in Christian identity. That's the most glaring, in my opinion. Then, then there, there are the clowns that have always denied being racist right from the beginning, like Stephen Jones and Ted Wyland and James Brueggemann. But they're just denominational clowns. They're not even Christian identity. They don't deserve the title. They claim to be Christian identity, and then they suck the identity out of identity completely. <laughs> At least Eli upholds it in, in lies, but he upholds it. 
So take your pick. Do you want to listen to a dumb sheep or to a straight pig? I'm sorry. That's my opinion. I'm just being honest. Yeah, and um, I, I was meant to say it earlier, but I was just going to say that um, even our race, like uh, pre-Christianity, if you look in the like Greek classics and Roman classics, that they always did fear the gods. Like if they held an oath that they felt that they had to keep it or dire consequences would come on them or if they did something that was treacherous or evil, that they really were God-fearing, right? And all these non-white bastards, they're really, they're never like that, that they have no um, understanding of consequences, you, you know, because that's just their nature, right? Absolutely. And, and that is a, a very good point. If, if you read <clears throat> even the tragic poets, now, now the Greeks did that they had a libertarian attitude towards certain forms of immorality. Well, like when it came to pederasty and homosexuality, right? It, it, they would just turn a blind eye. If they did not approve of it, they would turn a blind eye to um, men, grown adult men, having homosexual relationships with young boys. A lot of the Greeks did that. That's very clear. Others had spoken quietly against it. Men like um, Tacitus. Others, you could tell, approved of it, like Pindar, or at least would mention it, but never really approved of it, like Diodorus Siculus or Strabo. They mentioned it, but they didn't really approve of it, because they were objective and they had libertarian attitudes towards it. So, we have modern libertarians today who are the same way. They'll accept sodomites even though they themselves would not participate in sodomy, right? <clears throat> and, and we see that's a prevailing attitude in our society today. Well, that was also a prevailing attitude in ancient Greece and ancient Rome. So, that being said, aside from that and a few other sins that they would overlook, they were generally very moral people who respected their women and held them close and made sure that they weren't violated and corrupted and who raised their children well in their own customs, of course, and who, when they made oaths or contracts or promises, they really did, as you said, fear the retribution of the gods if they broke those oaths, contracts, or promises which they saw as oaths, and a promise was an oath. A contract is an oath. It, it's no difference to them. And, and that's the way it also is in the Hebrew Bible, that a contract, agreement, promise was always made with an oath because you should fear God if you're not um, fair to your fellow man. And they did, but not these people that Peter describes. And, and even in the Jewish Talmud, it's to, to steal from a non-Jew is not only approved, it's encouraged to take the property of the Goyim, who are only cattle. It's, a, it's encouraged, and they have no fear of God, and they feel they could steal from anybody they want, 
and they that they express their own self-righteousness because they profess that they are the chosen people, of course. Where even Abraham wouldn't take a gift from a Hittite. He could have taken the field for free from the Hittite. The Hittite offered it to him for free, the field where he could bury his wife. Abraham didn't want it for free. He wanted to pay for it. So the Jews don't even have the attitude of Abraham. Abraham didn't want anything for free from the Hittites. That's in Genesis. No, it's mentioned in Genesis 49. It's from Genesis chapter 25. <clears throat> Genesis, the account is in Genesis chapter 23. It's mentioned in 25 and 49. Ephron the Hittite says to Abraham, Nay, my Lord, hear me. The field give I thee, and the cave that is therein, I give it thee. In the presence of the sons of my people, give it I to thee. Bury thy dead. And Abraham bowed down himself to, before the people of the land, and he spoke unto Ephron, the Hittite, right? And he answered to the people of the land, saying, But if thou wilt give it thee, I pray thee, hear me. I will give thee money for the field. Take it of me, and I will bury my dead there. So this Hittite tried to give Abraham a field. Why? In order to influence him in the future. That's why Jews give things away, for the purpose of influence. Abraham didn't want to be influenced or be in a position where he could be influenced by a Hittite. That's why we don't take the property or the gifts from of strangers. That's why we should never take their property or their gifts. So the Jews of today are completely contrary to the attitude of Abraham. Even the loot from the Kings of the Canaanites, whom Abraham had defeated, I believe that's in, perhaps it's in Genesis chapter 16 or 15, I, I forget. Even the loot he didn't, he, he didn't keep, he didn't want. He didn't want to profit from the Canaanites. So he gave it away totally contrary to the attitudes and opinions of Jews today. Like that Jew who picked up $1, right? <laughs> On the forums. Oh, the video. Yeah, that's funny. I should post that video with this program. <laughs> no, I won't do that. I won't do that. <laughs> Everybody that hears this program is going to wonder about this video, but this that these kids evidently set up a Jew by taking fishies and smearing it on a dollar bill. I don't want to imagine how they did that, but they did it. And laying it in the street outside of, outside of a shop and on video this old Jew with a yarmulke pulls up in front of the shop and gets out and sees the dollar bill and picks it up and he's going to take it away. So one young man stopped him and he said something like, are you going to keep that dollar? And the Jew said, oh, I'll wash it. Oh, I'll wash it. <laughs> and he, he picked it up and put it to his nose and smelled it. He must have known what it was when he saw it, but he put it to his nose and had to smell it. I think the Jew enjoyed the smelling of the feces. I really do. But that's how Jews are. And he wouldn't mind washing the dollar. Probably threw it right into his washing machine with the rest of his clothing.
just like the pig in its filth, right? Absolutely. That's how they are for a dollar. Okay, on that note, perhaps we should end this program and look forward to discussing these same things from the perspective of Jude next week. I think that'll be good to have these back-to-back like that. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Okay, praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of our European people. Thanks, Bill. Thank you, and thank you for being here. Praise Yahweh. Good night.